Well, I'm delighted to say that joining me on the Godcast today is Charlie Bell. Now, Charlie is a man of many talents. He's a doctor, he's a priest, uh, he's an academic, um, he's also a gay man in the Church of England. And uh, Charlie, it's fabulous to get you on the Godcast. How are you doing? Thanks, it's really great to be with you. Where, whereabouts are you today? Where do we find you? Um, so I've been in one of my usual days of trying to do many different things at the same time. So uh, I'm I'm in South London at the moment um, uh, at, uh, yeah, near, just, just outside of uh, Kennington. So, so for people who don't know you, Charlie, you've got quite a lot going on there when we say all those things. Just just break that down for us a little bit. How does it all work in the life of Charlie Bell? Well, I'd love to know. Um, <laughs> I I, uh, I work full time as a psychiatrist for the for the National Health Service, um, and uh, so that's my day job, as it were. Um, I do some teaching at um, at Cambridge for um, uh, undergraduate medics. Um, and I also am a priest in the Church of England. I'm serving a non-stipendary, non-paid curacy uh, just down the road from work at uh, St. John the Divine Kennington. So I try and hold those things together. Sometimes one is uh, rather more emphasised than the other, but it's it's a busy but exciting life. Just tell us a, a little bit about your calling, Charlie, and how that came about. Was this a, was this a, something that had been burning away for some, for some years or did it kind of creep on you quite quickly? Um, I suppose it was a bit of both. Um, it had been it been hanging around in the back of my mind for some time. Um, and then when I got to university, it continued to hang around. And I thought, this is annoying. Um, and then and then got in touch with the vocations advisor uh, eventually after putting it off for years and years, thinking if I speak to her, at least she'll say this is ridiculous. Please go away. Stop bothering us. Um, and it didn't. Uh, and so I ended up uh, I ended up going forward into the process. It's been a bit bumpy here and there, but um, but no, it's it's always been there. I, I grew up as a chorister um, in a cathedral. So so daily worship and all the rest of it has been is been a kind of part and parcel of my life, really. So um, so I guess for my family, it wasn't it wasn't a shock, but it was possibly a surprise that I ended up um, going forward for ordination. Yeah. And, and as as is. <clears throat> Very clear and open. You're, you're a gay man, Charlie. I, I was wondering when you first may have um, discovered prejudice as a, as a gay Christian. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's lots of people for whom their faith and their sexuality has been a kind of conflict. And that's never really been the case for me. It certainly wasn't until I got further into the church, really. Um I, I, you know, I don't know when I knew I was gay. I mean, my, goodness, only knows when people find out, really. But I, I never really knew I was anything else. It just became clear that that was that was how things were going. And, um, and and the church I was in at the time, and and the 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 school I was in, everything was just, you know, church life was a kind of haven in a sense. Church was was a safe place to be. It was a place where you could be yourself. It might not have been named as 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 me being gay at that stage, but it wasn't a place where I was ever worried necessarily about naming it. Um, it was only once I kind of met, went along to a Christian Union event, actually, and it was a barbecue, which was a good way to get people in. Um, and so we had a barbecue. And then that was the first time I heard that God might have a problem with gay people, at which point I thought, oh, that sounds unusual and odd. Uh, and unlikely um, and that was the first time that I'd really experienced it and so so yeah and then as I got through further into the church and the rest of it um, I, I suddenly realized that perhaps the uh, the charmed life that I'd lived up until that stage was not quite the, the experience for the majority of people who are gay and Christian. As you entered that discernment process did anybody 
uh, try and put you off because of your sexuality? Were you with a kind of lots of warning signs about what lay ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think people in a good meaning, in a well-meaning way, say, are you sure about this? Uh, and it was it was generally people who themselves had no issue whatsoever with with with, uh, you know, gay priests and the rest of it and, and possibly themselves even were them. Um, but would say, are you sure you're you're willing to let yourself in for all of this? Um, and it's tough, isn't it? Because you don't know and you think, yeah, it'll be fine. But, you know, we're all naive. <laughs> and so there was a sense of kind of naivety, I think, in my in my determination to go forward. Um, I mean, lots of people will know that the kind of official rules and the strictures that are placed around us and so on. But um, but, you know, in a sense, I felt there was something I could do. There was something I could do as a gay priest that was worth doing. Charlie, just just unpack that for people, because a lot of people uh, listen and watch the Godcast who who aren't, aren't churchy, for want of a better word. Yeah. You say about the rules and the kind of the things you can and you can't do. Just just explain that to people who are listening to to this and thinking, well, what rules? What what's different for you than might be different for me as a, as a as a heterosexual man? Yeah, sure. So so I'm speaking in June of 2023. Just it's useful to know that because things might change, but. Um, and I say that because I'm sitting on one of the groups that's that's reviewing and, and giving guidance and advice to the House of Bishops as to how things might change the the, the decision making. But actually, at the moment, um, those of us who are who are gay as clergy are um, are prohibited from from having any sexually intimate relationships. So uh, are, are committed to celibacy, um, and that's from the minute that you go into the process, you're asked to sign up to a, a document which is imaginatively named issues in human sexuality, um, which which rather suggests the truth, which is that we're often issues rather than people. Um, and so we are told you may not, you must be celibate and also we may not get married. So that has been that that has been the case. Um, we may it's not possible to get married in the Church of England. It's, it's against the law, but it's not. We're also not allowed to enter into civil marriages um, as clergy. So those are the kind of two uh, official strict rules. Um, there's 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 differences between different different bishops and different places where you might live but but that's generally the, the case across the church of england yeah and what, what's your feeling about intimate relationships charlie i mean i mean i you know this is a subject that people kind of don't like talking about but the reality is that intimate sexual relationship is one of the great joys of a relationship um and yeah. you're not allowed to do that how, how does that make you feel as a as an individual well, it just feels deeply unchristian. I mean, it just feels like we're, we're, we're separating relationality, the way we relate to one another, intimacy and sexuality in a totally arbitrary and false way. Um, that's the opposite of what, you know, if we talk about ourselves as embodied people, if, if our theology is all about us being um, people who live in bodies and are coherent, integrated wholes, yet we're then told that sexuality nonetheless can be kind of sliced out of that. Um, and for me, this idea of, you know, I, I struggle to really know what the church means when it talks about sex, to be quite honest. Um, I'm not really sure what the church means when it talks about celibacy. Um, how do you determine if a relationship is sexual or not? How do you determine whether it's intimate or not? How far is too far? And the fact that these questions sound so ridiculous suggests to me that the whole concept of this is is, is completely wrong. And of course, the, the document which we which I've just mentioned, issues in human sexuality was never meant to be used for this purpose. It was a kind of stepping stone on a on a conversation, and in, instead we've got to this state where we basically separate sex from everything else. That that seems to me to be 
both really bizarre and also just deeply, deeply unfair, not only to clergy, because we're used to that, but to partners as well. It, it, it's a strange one. I mean, I find it peculiar that, that you know, in, in what other job would you be asked these questions, you know? Do you, do you promise well, not well, to, fine. you know? Um, and it just seems really archaic, which leads me to ask the question, Charlie, what's it, what's it like being a gay priest in the Church of England today? It's quite tough. Um, I'm just back from the United States and and, and the church in America, the, the Episcopal Church, uh, has has kind of not fully dealt with, but in many ways has dealt with this question. Um, and I, I've suddenly realised quite how difficult it can be to be a, a gay priest in England. I was having conversations there and getting on with things there, and I realised I wasn't constantly looking over my shoulder or checking the exact form of words I was using or, or, or indeed kind of, you know, carrying some of that internalized homophobia that, that an institution creates for you. So it's tough. And I think sometimes because we just get on with it and because most of us have a vocation to be a priest that, that is more than our identity, our sexuality and so on, we just get on with it. And sometimes I feel like because we're so effective at just getting on with it, the pain and the difficulty and the challenge is just not heard. Um, and I think that's a real sadness because people will leave and do leave the church because it's just the tension becomes too much. Yeah, I think that's really, really important what you say there about that, that most people just want to get on with it. My own uh, associate priest uh, working with me is in, is in a same-sex relationship, as was my training incumbent. And uh, you know, ultimately, they just wanted to get on and do the job. But, but of course, it's very difficult to do that, isn't it? Um, with what is going on, and, and as the as the synod has come to this decision, Charlie, that um, prayers can be offered, this in many ways has, as I suspected it would, has, has actually created a huge chasm now, hasn't it? What what's your initial feelings? Or what what sorry? What were your initial feelings when you saw that that was passed at synod? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose uh, I've said many times about this decision that I was kind of um, disappointed, but not surprised. Um, I mean, I think I, I think the way that it was reported in the secular media, you know, the normal media, um, uh, that the Church of England says no to same-sex marriage is the reality. That is what the church has said. Um, and I think some people in the church are really surprised that that was how it was received, because for many people, particularly for those who are not themselves, um, you know, LGBT, they, their response was kind of, well, we're offering blessings, it's something. And it's true, offering blessings is something. Up until now, we've not been able to do anything. If um, and, and of course, there is practice where people do do things, but the official, the official rules um, have, have, have been pretty clear that we shouldn't be offering kind of public and specific blessings for people. And you know, it, it, it's something, and I think it's the first, um, I think it's the foot in the door territory. Um, you can't put this all back in the Pandora's box, but um, but it's disappointing. It means yet again, you know, when folk come to us and say, can we get married? We've been Christians for 50 years and we've been together for 50 of those. Um, our response is no. Whereas someone turns up and lives in the parish and wants to get married and has never been to church. And the answer is yes. And that feels to me, and we have to say yes. That to me just feels a completely wrong-headed way of doing things. When um, when that was going on at Synod, I have to say, Charlie, that was one of the most stressful things I've experienced as a as a priest. And and um, I voted in favour of of the prayers and blessings. But 
but it was with a heavy heart. I really wanted to say, no, this is not enough. And I think a lot of people yeah. in that room felt the same. But now that decision has been taken, um, there's. it seems to me that there's a lot of manoeuvring uh, shenanigans going on. People kind of trying to get their house in order, what we do next, how we potentially move this forward, and from a more conservative position, how we can stop this. Where do you where do you yeah. see things as they stand now? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of fear being stoked, um, which I really think is, again, you know, without wanting to label people as unchristian, I think it's extremely unchristian as a, as a mode of operation to stir up fear where there need not to be any. Of course, there are genuine concerns about, you know, how people are able to inhabit a space where some people say one thing, other people say another thing. But you know, there is there's a really clear concerted campaign to try and stop anything from happening and, and to push rollback on on what's happened from General Synod. My feeling is this is going to happen. Um, it's been very clearly referred to as the implementation groups that we're that we're part of. Not not um, there's no kind of it's not a discussion group. It's an implementation. Of course, there's a disagreement as to what we're implementing. Um, and, and I think if we don't address things like clergy celibacy and marriage, then frankly, this whole thing has been a, a bit of a waste of time. Um, I, I have to say, I'm not convinced there's going to be thousands of people queuing up for this kind of not quite marriage ceremony. There'll be some because some people have got married civilly. But but, you know, we need to th th there needs to be a significant shift here. Um, and that's the, that's the direction that Synod has, has moved in. We've just got a lot of opposition, I think. Uh, and whilst all that's going on, uh, all this debate and conjecture going on, Charlie, there is a whole world of people out there that just don't care, aren't there? They just look at look at us and think, what what on earth is going on? And um, you know, I mean, I have to I have to say, if I was a, a gay man, I wouldn't want anything to do with it. What what is the thing that that keeps you within the Church of England? What is your kind of driving force is it to um, kind of be your contribution to what might happen in years to come or is it for your your self-interest or is it something else what what is it yeah i mean it's tricky so firstly my involvement in the church is because i think that what we proclaim ultimately is the gospel is true um and i wouldn't be a priest if that wasn't the case and frankly i just want to be allowed to just get on with that you know i'm i'm a bit of a reluctant activist uh, people don't believe this but it's true um you know, I've, I'm involved in this because I think that I'm trying to tell the truth about something. Um, and I think that's what being a priest is about in general. I, I think there will be change. I'm kept there because of because of a hope, a genuine hope that things will change, because I genuinely believe that 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 what we're saying is true. I genuinely believe that, that a church that includes, affirms, welcomes and, and recognizes LGBT people in its midst is a healthier and better church better able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's 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 my kind of starting point. But I also wonder if I'm called to be a bit awkward. I mean, I think people are in, 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 in generations, you know, across centuries, millennia even, there have been awkward people in the church who have who have sat there and refused to move and said, I'm just as much Christian as you, by the way. Um, and you can't you can't say I'm not. And I wonder sometimes if those of us who are kind of raising our voices a bit about LGBT issues are those awkward Christians for this generation. And maybe that's what we're called to be. It's not comfortable for us either, um, but maybe maybe that's why I'm here. I'm never sure why God called me to the church, really. It all seemed like a very strange idea, but, you know, that's God's fault. I think a lot of us, a lot of priests think like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, 
a few weeks ago, I was in a meeting. Uh, Charlie Ware, a conservative evangelical, said he was he was embarrassed to be part of the Church of England, which saddened me greatly. Um, I wonder what you think. You know, if if the church does move forward and and if ultimately becomes um, more inclusive, but the conservative wing of the church moves away, is that a price worth paying? Well, I don't think it has to happen. I think it's a choice. Um, and we've heard a lot about people breaking away, which feels to me to be often sitting in the realm of threat rather than in the realm of wanting to have a constructive conversation. Um, at the moment, the reality is that for many conservative evangelicals, there is a refusal to compromise whatsoever. Uh, and even the idea of compromise is itself a compromise. Um, and so... Uh, in a sense, if if people are unable to live in a church where 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 there are differences of opinions that are being honestly expressed, well, I, I'm not sure how we can call ourselves a church at that point. That the work's already done there. Um, we already disagree. You know, there is there is already fundamental disagreement within the church. There's been no. The, I, we hear a lot now about kind of how those of us who would like things to change are somehow causing division or stimulating division and the rest of it. It's already there. It's just being named now. We're just finally being honest about it, um, and I and I and I really think that the church grows healthier by being honest about what it actually thinks. I don't think we'll see a great a great turn turn away. There are plenty of people who are very angry, very upset, very worried about the future, um, but I don't think there'll be a great turning away. But I do think there does need to be kindness from those of us who are on the affirming side to to find a way of of trying to, to be as generous as possible to those with whom we disagree, whilst at the same time recognising that if I had kids, I wouldn't want them going to one of their churches. I just wouldn't. because And especially if I had queer kids, I just would not want them going to a church where they're told they're less than. Yeah, I I, I entirely agree, Charlie. But I'm, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering, if I can ask you this is in your capacity as a priest and as a psychiatrist, that you know, you know that we've got some very cle clever people arguing for both cases, haven't we? We've got very, some very academics who who, are, who argue the conservative um, uh, literal scripture uh, rationale, and then there are more on the liberal leaning people like yourself and I who who don't agree that to be true. Um, is one of us right and one of us is wrong? Well, I guess we probably are. I mean, I'm not sure that any one of us is entirely right. Um, I think, I think though we have to be open to the possibility of the development of doctrine, to the development of what we understand to be true. And I think all of us therefore have a contribution to make to that. Um, you know, the one voice that was for a long time sort of silent in many debates about sexuality was people who themselves were LGBT and that that's changing. Um, but, 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 you know, it, I think, I think ultimately there, you know, as with all things, we always try to avoid binaries. We try to say that no, everyone, someone isn't wrong because someone else is right and the rest of it. But either, I mean, there's, there's a, there is a kind of binary here. Either God isn't upset by same-sex relationships or God is upset by same-sex relationships. But um, I think ultimately it's about trying to, trying to live with integrity before God in the way that we understand our theology, our Bible, our, our church history and the rest of it. That I think is the most important thing. Um, and actually 
the problem is quite often people with our integrity have been have been told that we don't have integrity and i think that's that's the problem um i'm very happy for people to say i just do not agree with you i cannot get to the same place as you um and hold that position with integrity but please don't question mine um and and maybe that's what the this blessings thing is doing maybe that's the the first step in that process yeah and um as somebody who's uh you know i i've uh experienced people uh stepping over the line as it were in terms of their responses i've had some rather awful comments made to me and i'm sure you have had similar mm. charlie how do you deal with that as a christian how do you wrestle that with that when somebody does step over the line which does happen and i've i've seen it happen myself yeah i mean i think i'm blessed with a thick skin um, I mean, like a really thick skin. I'm sometimes appalled at how much nonsense I'm willing to take, really. Um, I think probably growing up in a boarding school has, uh, has caused the, the thick skin to grow pretty impressive. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it needs to be called out. And I think, I think you know, the, the Church of England has something called the pastoral principles, which, which I've returned to more and more over the last little while, thinking about, um, they're, they're readily accessible online, but they're thinking about things like um, paying attention to power, speaking into silence and so on. These are actually helpful ways of doing conversations. The problem is there's no point having principles, having, having a, a list of principles if they're not put into effect. Um, and so for me that, you know, I, when I, when I face abuse, I try and, I try not to try not to lash out, although it's sometimes hard not to. Um, but, but I am aware that as a queer Christian, I'm often held up to a higher standard than many others who are then throwing things at us and, and just trying to needle in to try and get us to say that thing so they can then report us to the bishop, which happens on a not infrequent basis and is extremely tiresome. So, um, you know, it's it, it, it's hard, but we need to speak to each other as Christians. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves as well that we're speaking about other Christians. It's 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 easy to get angry and upset. Um, and sometimes it's good just to remind ourselves that, you know, there's a bigger picture here. Something I, I've learned through being on Synod is, is, is how difficult it is being on Synod and, and where the Church of England sits in the whole uh, Anglican communion. Do, do you think that the the Church of England holds too much responsibility. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of going with this, Charlie, with uh, the, the the news from the Ugandan church in terms of uh, homosexuality being criminalised and the church supporting that there and the very slow response from the senior team of the Church of England and and it kind of is like nobody's nobody wants to make the first move and I know that some stuff has come out today as we record this from the Archbishop of Canterbury and Stephen Cottrell but but you know we're completely different countries aren't we 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 have different cultures different ways of living is it is it kind of time the Church of England says no we're the Church of England we, we can't take responsibility for what goes on in the whole Anglican communion I mean, I think it's inexplicable that it's taken so long for the archbishops to have said anything about what's going on in, in Uganda. I can't, I cannot think of a possible reasonable excuse for taking this long. So what is, um, why did it take so long, do you think, Charlie? I don't know. I mean, it's clear that the other bishops were waiting for the archbishops to say something, or the archbishop to say something. It's clear that that wasn't going to happen. And it's clear that other bishops then felt the need to start saying things. And I'm sure, you know, it's reasonable. There are questions around 
having private conversations with other church leaders, you know, the archbishops uh, or the Archbishop of Canterbury, perhaps speaking with the Archbishop of Uganda privately and so on. So there's lots of reasons for the time, things not to be knee jerk and immediate, but I mean, several weeks is just ridiculous. Um, and so I don't know, but it's inexcusable. And, it, they, and, and and I'm afraid, you know, this is one of those things in which, you know, the church should be held to account and the church will not be held to account. And this will be, I mean, it's happened before with Nigeria, it's happened with Ghana. Every time something like this happens, there's a delay. And then people like me are told to kind of calm our heads and to stop getting upset about it. Well, um, tell that to queer Ugandans. I mean, they're going to be imprisoned for being who they are. So, I mean, back to your question on the communion, it's really tricky because we have a we have a colonial communion. Um, we have a communion that almost inevitably has a white person as its head. Almost inevitably, that person's a man and almost inevitably that person's English. Um, I mean, um, Parche to the previous Archbishop of, of Canterbury, of course, he was Welsh. But um, but in general, it's going to be from the English church. So and and yet. And yet they're they're holding this position by right as the head of the whole communion, which is the, the language that the Anglican communion uses about itself, not, not language I would necessarily think is comfortable. So that's very strange. And we've just been tinkering around with the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury, as opposed to recognising that a colonial communion in a post-colonial age is no longer on. The, the problem is, if you have a leader like the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's seen as the the... the um, the leader of, of the communion, how do you get to a position where that person can make a serious statement to another bishop um, where it's not seen as a power differential? Mm. It, it ultimately is, and it's white people telling non-white people what to do. We need to move away from that kind of differential, I think, before we can start having the serious conversations which we need to be having, but we're just not having them, you know, and it's it's just so depressing, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. And and um, just think of what you said if, a bit earlier, you know, just trying to open the door. I suppose when, once doors were opened in the Church of England, you can't really shut them again. And I, I was wondering if you think it's how feasible or how likely is that the uh, the next Archbishop, either of Canterbury or York, could be a woman? Well, I'd hope it was possible. Um, I mean, the level of institutionalized misogyny in the Church of England is just astounding. I keep hearing it referred to as a minority issue. I mean, people need to read their demographics. It's not a minority issue. It's a majority issue. Um, you know, so this is so so I, I would hope it could be the case. And I would hope that it's it's it, I'm afraid it would be pandering if the argument, well, the communion was used to prevent a woman from being the next archbishop. So I would hope it's possible. We could, um, Charlie. Mike's just gone off. We could, we could be um, entering realms, though, couldn't we? Where where that happened, uh, which would create another schism. And which, but but I'm trying to think of why I'm leading with this, Charlie. Is you know some of the noises I'm hearing about potential resolutions is, and I'm sure you will have heard this as well, is the potential for a, a third province to be created, either for want of a better word, the gays and and all the uh, you know the liberals. Um, or a third province for the Conservatives. I, I just think that sounds ridiculous in my mind, but, but where, where do you see that going? Yeah, I don't see there being any Episcopal support for that, any support from the bishops, um, not least because of the of what's happened with women's ordination. Um, we'd end up, you know, even, even having what we have as these flying bishops, having, you know, bishops covering particular parishes if they don't like gay people, 
I, I think the idea of that's just, I think it's for the birds. Um, and, and I don't think there's any real desire to, to go towards a more structural change in the church. Um, not least because we're not talking about big numbers here. I think the, the interesting thing that we hear a lot of is, you know, we hear, well, the liberals should just go and form their own province. But actually, the majority of the Church of England is in favour of, of, of same-sex marriage, in favour of, of having LGBT members and all the rest of it. That being the case, it's not the liberals who are going to need to make a, a separate province, however many times we're told that we're in the minority. Mm. The synod is an interesting place because the representative um, noise that comes from a particular conservative group is absolutely unrepresentative of the wider church. And that's a structural problem, which is incredibly dull, but nonetheless incredibly important because it's it's completely changing the way that the church appears to the wider world and how the church makes decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I could just kind of bring this uh, whole discussion around um, this matter to, to a head, what, what's your kind of short-term expectations, Charlie? And, and maybe five, ten years down the road, where do you see us? So I think um, I think the outcome of this Living in Love and Faith project and the, the proposals of the General Synod, I think we're likely to see things later this year, probably at the November Synod. I think there'll be things to iron out after that, but I think we'll have the majority of the information then. And I don't think we'll see anything in a month's time. And I don't think I'm letting any secrets out of the bag there. I think that's just I think that's just. I think we'll see, um, I think we'll see clergy, uh, I think the celibacy rule, I think, well, I think what will happen is that the difference between clergy and laity will be lifted. Um, and so the celibacy rule for clergy, the refusal of marriage for clergy and the rest of it will be lifted. I think these blessings will be permitted for people who are both in civil marriages and in civil partnerships. Uh, and I think that's where we'll sit for a few years. But one bishop very naively and almost um, beautifully said to me, well, at least that's put that to bed now. Um, I, the idea that this is going to stop is just for the birds again. There has to be a recognition that we are still denying queer people equal access to the sacraments, if we call it a sacrament, or at least to church order, if we won't go that far. So this is this is fundamentally problematic for an institution. I think two, three years time, there'll be a new synod elected. Who knows what will happen in the next synod? But if people think this is not going to be the one of the main election causes for the next general synod and legislative business for the next general synod in terms of moving towards marriage, then they're I, then they're they're living in fantasy land. So blessings this year, removal of celibacy and allowing of marriage, and then I think intermarriage itself in the next few years. It's just who knows if there'll be anyone to listen anymore or care about what the Church of England thinks about this stuff. Well, I think I was going to just say, I think when, when, on my first sitting in Synod, the presidential address was suggesting that in the national attendance now is now below 1%. Um, you know, I suppose the question I have is, is, do you think the Church of England can survive this regardless? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of questions about what the Church of England even is now. Um, you know, the, the Church of England is changing dramatically in front of our eyes um, in terms of the way that we worship, in terms of the, you know, what we think of ourselves as, as in, in relation to the, the nation. We're no longer a, a church that marries you if if you come calling. We're a church that marries you if you come calling, provided that it's to someone of the opposite sex. 
Um, we've changed almost by mistake our fundamental relationship with the state. Um, and queer people turn up to churches and realize that they're not welcome or their families do. Or And, and so it we're producing so much trouble for ourselves. I don't know. I mean, I hope it survives, but I don't think that the institutional survival of the Church of England is the same as the institutional survival or rather the survival of the gospel. Um, and so I don't know, but we seem so inward looking and so determined to keep it, you know, some of the things we've been talking about, keep everybody in the tent. That's great. I'm in favor of that, but I also want other people to come into the tent I also want our tent to get bigger. I want the gospel message to be spread throughout the whole country and the world and the rest of it. And we're just failing impressively on that front. It's not just about queer issues, but we're failing on that front and we've got so much more work to do. Charlie, I don't want to finish this interview on, on the negatives. Tell me tell me what you, you love about your ministry, because, I mean, I, I get bogged down in the stuff that we've been talking about. And if people have been listening to this, they will... For the first time about church politics, they're probably thinking, oh, my goodness me. But but there are some joys, aren't there? <laughs> Please tell me there are in your world. What are those joys? There, for are. You? there are. People say to me, oh, you, I, I'm not going to come to your church because I just hear you preaching about gay things all, all the time. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth um, in the church. Sorry. Hang on. There's something going past the window very loudly. Let me try that again. <laughs> um. Yeah, lots of people say to me, um, you know, I'm not coming to your church because you just preach about gay things all the time, which is just not the truth. Um, the reality is the parish I'm in is the most life-giving experience in the world. We have um, a huge number of people from the Windrush generation. Um, uh, so we've got a lot of folk from Barbados, Jamaica. Um, we've also got a lot of a lot of um, folk from West Africa, um, some from East Africa, and, and a huge number of increased um, uh, uh, congregation from South America. We have the most unbelievably diverse parish where everybody happens to find ways to get on with one another and not just tolerate one another, but find ways to to kind of, you know, uh, rejoice in each other. And at our Pentecost um, service a couple of weeks ago, um, we have a, a, a lunch afterwards, an international lunch where everyone brings cuisine from their own place. We had everybody trying everyone's cuisine. We had Ecuadorian dancers in the church. In two weeks' time, we've got our Windrush celebration. Um, it's just that this place is vibrant and full of full of gospel joy. So the reality is the day-to-day -day mission of the church is amazing and great and wonderful. And the people that we get to serve makes this all worth it. I just wish we could stop talking about something which to me is so completely obvious and just move on from that and get back to proclaiming the gospel and serving people because that's what we're meant to be doing. That's what I love. That's what I absolutely love doing. That's why I'm a priest in the first place. Well, I'm into that, Charlie. Absolutely. Uh, Charlie, it's been lovely talking to you. I've been following you with interest on Twitter. Uh, I, I want to thank you for what you're doing for the cause because, um, you know, we might not change the world today, but I think people like yourself are, are hopefully creating a, a new landscape down the road. And, and that's really important. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on. I want to, for people who are watching this to, ch to check out the Godcast. There's, um, Lots of religious discussions. There's lots of celebrities, musicians, um, and sports people. Um, but for now, from Alex Frost, host of the Godcast, author of Our Daily Bread, August to the Altar, Charlie Bell, thank you for coming on the Godcast. Thank you. Thank you so much.